All right, this is the Park Hill Church podcast. My name is Evan Wickham, and I'm one of the pastors at the church here with our special guest, Nijay Gupta, Dr. Gupta. And uh, I'm very excited to have him here. Just to remind everyone, we are doing this interview series to enrich our current teaching series, God Breathed, how, how we are relearning how to read and trust the Bible. And really, it's an act of following Jesus. Jesus loved and trusted the Bible as something from the Father, good, beautiful, authoritative, and true for his own life. And we love Jesus, so we treat the Bible like Jesus did, and we receive it from him. And that's the spirit of this series. But it raises questions like, what about, you know, the ugly parts of the Bible? How do those parts, how do we follow Jesus by reading the hard parts of the Bible and finding Jesus there? And, uh, and tons of questions spin off that and that's what this series is for and so uh, I without any further delay I would love to just introduce you church to this man uh, Nijay Gupta so uh, in this series we have we have pastors we have theologians we have scholars and this guy is a scholar of scholars he I mean you you're part of translating the bible (laughs) yeah that's right yeah yeah I'm a senior translator for the new living translation and and yeah, it's one of the greatest honors in my life. Yeah, so I have all kinds of questions. Like, what's it like in that room, sitting around a table, deciding what the Bible's going to say in English? <laughs> That's crazy. That's, it's a big uh, responsibility, for sure. Yeah. Um, we could talk about that a little bit, but I first just want to start uh, by in, inviting you, Nijay. Just for those of you that don't know you, um, can you give us like the the two-minute elevator pitch. Who is Nijay? Yeah. Like, how, like, this yeah, yeah. series is about the Bible, so how did you come into the relationship you now have with the Bible and obviously relationship sure. with God through the Bible that you now have? Like, tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Um, yeah, I, I actually was born and raised in north-central Ohio. My parents are immigrants from India. They came in the early 70s. I was born in the late 70s. And I grew up in a Hindu family, um, and I became a Christian through my brother, who became a Christian through some of his friends. Um, I became a Christian when I was 16, and I just fell in love with the gospel. I just, you know, really struggled as a young person to figure out how does this brown kid in a rural white town in Ohio find who he is, and God met me there. Um, And I just had this voracious appetite to understand God's Word. And so I did lots of Bible studies, and I read like Max Lucado and Jerry Bridges, all these like popular writers in the 90s. And I went to college, Miami University of Ohio, um, and then I wanted to go to seminary, and I chose Gordon-Conwell Seminary for a couple of reasons. One is they had a focus on discipleship, which I was really passionate about, with Robert Coleman. So if any master plan of evangelism fans out there, I got to study with the man. And then um, a focus on biblical languages. I love languages in general. Um, and I know you're a musician, Evan, so I think you'd like this. I've heard that there's a relationship between uh, people that are good at math, people that are good at languages, and people that are good at music, but usually you're only two out of three. <laughs> and I'm yeah. not good at math. Uh, so um, I love language and I love music because they're kind of formula, but they have creativity. Um, and so I went to seminary, studied biblical languages, and I was kind of at a fork in the road. Do I want to be a pastor or do I want to be a scholar? Because I love the nerdy academic stuff, but I also love the church for all of its weirdness and brokenness. And I actually ended up 
doing both. I feel like I have kind of a pastoral ministry where I teach, equip, and care for pastors as a seminary professor. But yeah, my life really is um, about um, kind of being a cheerleader for Scripture. I want people to know how beautiful and rich and deep and um, vivifying the Bible is. It's more than just this dusty old book. Um, it, it's, you know, just as Peter said to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. S- some of that has been captured in Scripture, and that is for our benefit. So that's kind of my passion. I love that. We've been referring to that Peter line a lot because that was in response to Jesus having a really hard teaching that (laughs) lost him some people. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. Like, what do we do with hard teachings from Jesus? And I'm, I'm going to maybe come right out of the gate with that question for you. Like what part of the Bible as a Bible scholar, what part of the Bible keeps you up at night still? Like it keeps you up at night. And, and then what do you do? What do you do with that? Sure. Yeah, lots of stuff. And you and I have talked before about what, what we would say in these moments. And um, I've been doing a lot of study of uh, Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon, uh, which is about a slave named Onesimus. And I've been studying what are called the household codes, where Paul's talking about family relationships. One of the things, Evan, that keeps me up at night is the fact that the New Testament takes for granted and even reinforces human slavery. Um, and so what we would want to see is this battle cry from Paul, the apostles, Jesus saying, no more slaves, slave go free, revolt. And we see the opposite. If you read First Timothy, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, where Paul kind of tisk tisks a little bit and says, hey, slaves, be the best slaves you can be, obey your masters as, as if you were obeying the Lord Jesus. Could you imagine? I mean, I was just watching the movie, my wife and I, the movie Emancipation about, um, you know, American slavery and the fact oh, that yeah. Lincoln had declared freedom, but in the South, they hadn't actually freed people. So slaves were trying to flee and run across the border to make it into places where the freedom was recognized. And so uh, Will Smith's character is on a working site working, and there are preachers preaching these slavery texts to keep them obedient, saying, God wants you, you know, and it's just right there in the Bible. And I'd always thought as a younger person, oh, they didn't know anything about emancipation or liberation or abolition. But actually I've learned over time, there were uh, nations or cultures that were anti-slavery overtly. And probably someone like Paul would have ran into people from those cultures um, for example, the Essenes, the Qumranic Essenes, this Jewish community was anti-slavery. There's a kind of Germanic group that was anti-slavery. There were all kinds of philosophers that were raising the questions about slavery. And yet, pretty much across the board, the New Testament um, not only allows it, but in a sense even reinforces it. I'm going to go in the weeds a little bit, but I think you'll like this, Evan. Please do, because this is already um, this is already troubling, so you need to fix what you're setting up right now. <laughs> I'm not fixing I'm going to make it worse for a minute. Um, so so one, of the, one of the interesting things about Paul's letter to Philemon, I'm writing a book on, on this, is um, you know this slave has left his master, uh, Philemon, and meets Paul, becomes a Christian, and Paul is sending him back 
basically saying, go home and be a really good slave and make peace with your master. Um, now, in the early church, we're talking third and fourth century, there were questions about the canon, what should go in the New Testament. And there were many people saying, we shouldn't have Philemon in the New Testament because it doesn't talk about he heaven. It doesn't about salvation. It doesn't talk about the cross. So there are these conversations like, maybe Philemon shouldn't be in the New Testament. It's not that it's insubstantial. There's technical language they used. And actually, theologians like John Chrysostom, people that we admire, made the case, hey, listen, we should put in our New Testament because it tells Christian slaves to not run away. It, it, it basically discourages running away. And um, this is where we get a lot of the runaway slave narratives and that we have um, that have persisted throughout time. That's troubling. <laughs> it's really, really <laughs> troubling. Um, you know, in terms of how, you know, how we solve that, I think with a lot of these biblical texts, you know, I'm going to say something general and then I'm going to say something specific. So the general thing is um, a real relationship that we have with God, and we have that in part through the Bible, has tensions that you can't resolve, right? My wife and I have disagreements and mm. personality differences that we can't resolve, you know, like my office will always be messy no matter how much she wants it clean, right? Like they're, they're, they're just certain things, right? And we'll try and negotiate and we'll try to work together on things. But then there's some things where you're just like, there's going to be tensions there. And so I, I kind of almost think about the Bible like, like a grandpa that you love and respect sometimes says things that are inappropriate <laughs> you know I mean? like at the Thanksgiving table, the Christmas table. And oh, you're just like, such a good analogy. okay, I have so much love for this person. I thought about writing a historical fiction. I'm not good at this, but I thought about writing a historical fiction where like a teenager goes to live with his grandpa on a farm, though he's a city boy. And, and it would be an allegory of someone's relationship with the Bible. And like, I kind of think of the grandpa as like a old crotchety Clint Eastwood kind of, you know, old person who is ju justice-oriented, righteous, but just has these hard opinions, that sort of yeah. thing. And, I, you know, I thought about calling him Gus, like Logos, Gus. Anyway, oh, all that to say, um, I, I, think, I think we need to be careful about the desire to brush tensions under the carpet and just sort of, I call this folk apologetics, because it's just trying to give us a little shot to say, <laughs> okay, I feel better. I feel better about the Bible. I do want to find solutions to our problems, but sometimes we just have to acknowledge these things are really, really messy. So specifically when it comes to the slavery issue that does keep me up at night, um, I'm going to advertise a book here. Uh, I have a book coming out called Strange Religion, How the First Christians Were Weird, Dangerous, and Attractive. Basically, I'm saying Christian was amazing. But I have a chapter in there at the end that, that says, that's called the early Christians weren't perfect. And I actually bring up slavery. Mm. I bring up a few things. But I bring up slavery and I say, um, I think I think they took a certain strategy of saying, hey, let's not change the structure of society. Let's, let's tr try to change the world from the inside out. You know, let's, let's change the dynamics of relationships without changing the structures of relationships. Um, and, and I think, I think they, they gambled and they lost <laughs> in, in, yeah. in a sense. Um, I'm not saying that makes the Bible wrong. Um, there are all kinds of things in the Bible that we technically wouldn't agree with, like genocide, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, there are things in the Bible we yeah. just wouldn't agree with. And we would say, but, but that doesn't mean that's normative. That doesn't mean the Bible saying, go out and do those things. It's recounting the history of God's relationship with his people. 
And I think the reinforcement of slavery is is wrong. I think it's wrong. And I think I think we can extract a theological principle from that that is good, like missionaries going into another land and wanting to integrate and understand before they meddle, right? I think we can learn some principles about that, but I think actually maintaining slavery, justifying it. I What I like to tell people is if, if I could put Paul in a time machine and bring him to 2023 and update him on all of history, I think he would see the problem that some of his words created. Based I don't know if he would say it was him wrong. From what he's written. Yeah, I think I don't think he'd say, you know, it was heresy what he said, you know, but I think he right. would realize, oh gosh, people started to take what I said out of context or people started to use this with political power and now all of a sudden I think he'd realize that some of that was was led to some bad things. I think he would acknowledge I love, that. maybe he would have done it differently. I love the acknowledgement. Yeah, we are quick. Even in our attempts to be, you know, have our ear to the culture and have our ear to the person who's quote-unquote deconstructing, even in our attempt to be empathetic towards those who really struggle with the difficult parts of the Bible, we can still have that folk apologetics, that like like quick fix attitude toward the text rather than what you just did, which is like, I don't know that I'll ever get over my sleeplessness over the way the New Testament talks about slavery. Because some people and, and, do want to look at the way Paul condemns uh, kidnappers or human traitors. Some yeah. people want yeah. to really, really camp out on that and say, no, Paul baked abolition into the New Testament with that verse. Yeah. And what would you say to that? Um, that's not how history played out, <laughs> first of all. No one got the message for, you know, 17, 1800 years. Um, there were no, I don't think it led to abolition in any country until, um, you know, the modern era. Um, so no one got the message. Um, I, what I say in some of my work is the seed was planted, like Galatians 3.28, neither slave nor free. The, seed, the theological seed is planted, right, that eventually became Western abolition. But it does keep me up at night that Paul didn't just come right out and say, and, he, and you have First Corinthians where he says, if you can, you know, get your freedom, um, then go ahead and do it. But he doesn't do that on a mass scale. He does that on an individual scale. Hey, if you can get your freedom, go ahead. Um, but then he also says, whoever's married should not try to get unmarried. Whoever's not married is slaves. And I mean, he he's happy for systems to stay the same and for Christ to transform things. Like I said, from the inside out, I if I were trying to defend him, I would say Christianity was such a minority population, they weren't going to create a political revolution and get away with it. But they did. I mean, they eventually yeah. did. So they could have maybe they could have done it earlier. I don't know. I, I I think it's I think it's healthy to pose these questions to God, to scripture, and to say, Hey God, I trust you. There's something these things I just don't like. And just bring that to God. One thing I've learned, I've learned a lot from my my co-podcaster, AJ Swoboda. But one thing that, that he and I have talked a lot about is the worst thing is not to complain to God. There is a huge portion of scripture dedicated to complaining to God in a natural mm. and healthy way. The worst thing is to turn away from God, right? Mm. To give God the cold mm -hmm. shoulder. That's the sign of the death of a relationship. 
Yeah. It's not it's not yelling at somebody, right? Because yelling at somebody in a relationship means that you still care about them. And so, you know, I've learned, okay, bring bring these laments, bring these concerns to scripture and to God. Yeah. With great advice, uh, and I love that podcast. By the way, listeners, um, Slow Theology is the name mm-hmm. of Nijay and AJ's podcast, and it's so helpful. Um, I love the length of your podcast episodes. They're always, they always feel right. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there's a 17-minute yeah. one, sometimes there's a 45-minute one. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, you've... I guess I'll go here. You have written a book called Tell Her Story. So we're talking about difficult passages, and often, you know, slavery in the Bible is is, is talked about in the same conversation as uh, the liberation of women in the Bible, yeah. and 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 how we read how we read those trajectories. Um, so you wrote a book called "Tell Her Story: How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church," and uh, I would love for you to kind of maybe tell um, tell us how you have. Evolved how you've deepened your understanding of what the Bible says about women, and um, maybe this is in part the question I was planning to ask you was: In what ways have you changed um, yeah. your views? And, and maybe in the last twenty, fifteen years, this is one of those ways. Maybe um, for sure. Unpack kind of your journey there on women in Scripture. Yeah, this is a great example where, you know, as a 16-year-old, I went to a pretty conservative church where, you know, only men were pastors, only men preached, um, only men were elders, and I didn't know any different. I didn't have a church to experience before that, and so I just kind of took it for granted that, okay, I kind of got the sense there were Bible texts about this, this is the way it is, and it sets up a certain structure of the world of, you know, men are out front leading, women are maybe behind the scenes supporting. And so, yeah, we had women worship leaders, we had women, you know, helping out in Sunday school, but but men were kind of on the big stage with the microphone. And um, in college, I got really into the writings of John Piper and Wayne Grudem, um, because that was seen by my kind of Christian peers as being serious about the Bible, serious about preserving traditional doctrine. And I call this package theology because if you like kind of the main things that they're selling, then you kind of take the whole package. So I really Mm. liked, you know, a high Christology, Jesus is God from the beginning, you know, preexistent. I liked, you know, a high view of scripture, scripture's inerrant. And so what comes with that is called complementarianism uh, when it's Piper and Grudem, right? And right. that is this, you know, don't give in to the feminists, don't give in to the liberationists, you know, all the stuff, um, kind of, you know, the, the, the ills of modern culture. And I, I felt like, okay, yeah, I can be one of these, you know, passionate, you know, warriors for, for pre- preserving, you know, classic doctrine. And um, even in college, you know, I, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and men, uh, and women did a lot of leading, but but only men could be the campus director, and a woman couldn't be a campus director. She could only be an assistant campus director or an associate or something like that. Okay. And I, again, I just thought this is the way the Bible is. And um, anyone that was deviating from that was liberal or disobeying the Bible or putting culture first or wanting kind of what their heart wants and not what God wants. Then I went to seminary, and I went to a pretty conservative seminary, but there were people from all different kinds of traditions that I had not 
interacted with before, Pentecostal, Lutheran, Episcopal, you know, all kinds. And for the first time, it, it kind of dawned on me, you know, as I interact with these students in class, they have the same high view of scripture. They have the same high view of um, wanting to submit to God. And yet they're coming to a different conclusion. So I set out and I, and I started interacting with this student named Amy, who I eventually married. She was a Master Divinity student. And I was told by some professors, stay away from these Master Divinity women students. They're going to, they're too liberal. <laughs> um, but Amy and I had a lot in common. We both went to state schools in the Midwest. We grew up in the Midwest. We both have a passion for missions. And so um, I, I ended up doing like a two-year, like thorough study of the issue. And Evan, what I realized is complementarianism in many ways is what I call edifice theology. So basically scholars are constructing a theology like a building. And they're basically handing it to you saying, this is, this is what's true. And what I had realized in my study wasn't that the building didn't exist, but it was kind of like a Jenga tower. And as I started to study other viewpoints, those, some of the pieces started to come out of this Jenga tower. Like, for example, the idea that man was created first and therefore that makes him superior or whatever, higher in status. But you have a pattern throughout scripture, the rest of scripture, where God often overturns the privilege of the firstborn. Like right. Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac, uh, David being the very last and least in his family and yet being the greatest king you know, in the, in the Old Covenant and so forth. So you have things like that. You say, oh gosh, a piece of that's taken out. Or there were no male, there were no female kings. Uh, oh, but then you have Deborah, who's a prophet, or sorry, who's a judge, who, you know, is is the ruler of the people. She's called a mother in Israel for a reason. Um, yeah. And so that piece and comes and out. It's not like there's no good men around who could have done it too, you know? Like she, Yeah, Barack she would have been the exact right person because you're looking for a military leader and he's in that story and he's not chosen. Um, and then... You know, oh, there are no women disciples, but then you have these women following Jesus around, and the angels appear to them. You know, I was just, I was just talking about um, this on Sunday. When I was preaching at a church in in my area, and what's interesting is, like Mary Magdalene, for example, is why do the in the Gospel of John, why do the angels and Jesus appear to her? and not to the men. And I'd always thought, oh, the men are somewhere else. Well, first of all, Jesus could have appeared to them as he does later. But second, if you read the Gospel of John, I encourage you to pause this and go read the Gospel of John. Uh, Mary went to the tomb. It was empty. She goes and gets Peter and John, who are apparently nearby. They come and see the tomb. They leave confused. She stays. And then the angels appear to her. Why didn't they appear to the men when they were at the tomb? And I can only think Jesus validating her showing up, right? The men That's didn't show good. up for Jesus and she did. Um, and so this, these, these yeah. are these pieces that come out of the tower and I start to realize there's a whole nother way of looking at it. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of introduce you and your, and your audience to a hermeneutical tool. This is hermeneutics is the philosophy interpretation. Scripture is, not written in a straightforward way, like, like, you know, the instructions for like, you know, how to toast bread or something. It's written in kind of, in a form where the more you meditate and, and work on trying to get deeper, 
mm-hmm. uh, you're going to actually tap into the really good stuff. And so take the parables, for example. Mm. Jesus, you know, according to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, you know, I'm teaching, he tells the disciples, I'm teaching the parables in a really unclear way to the masses. And then I'll only explain it to you, right? I, he, he, he says more than that. But he does. He gives these parables and he doesn't explain them. Why would he do that? And because he really wants the audience to pursue deeper understanding, to pursue deeper wisdom. So let's just take that issue with women. Often in the Bible, there's this kind of broad road, metaphorically, that we all kind of walk down that kind of seems obvious. And then there's what I call a breadcrumb trail. And the breadcrumb trail isn't obvious, but if you find it, that's where all the best stuff is. Now, that's going to sound kind of like like a trick, but like there's Bible an old theological... Yeah, but there's an old theological concept called Deus Absconditus, which means the God who likes to hide. This idea of why is God invisible when all the Greco-Roman gods can be seen with their statues and things? Why is God invisible? He wants to be pursued. And the Apostle Paul does this a lot in the New Testament when he's looking at the Old Testament. He says, you're going to see all this stuff about Israel, but then you're going to see these hidden kind of passages that tell you the real story, like Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Or in the Gospels, a great light has dawned, right? Where they're actually point. That's what prophecy is doing. When you look backwards, you're, you're looking at these breadcrumb trails. And I think that's often happening with women. I'm reading this book about the Gospels. It's blowing my mind. And this author is basically saying, even though the 12 are considered the disciples, they're kind of bumbling idiots, right? They don't do a whole lot. They misunderstand a lot. Then you have these women who are brilliant and have these really theologically brilliant conversations with Jesus, like the Syrophoenician woman, right? Who says, you know, even even the dogs get the scraps, you know, it's a test of wits and she kind of wins. Or you have the woman at the well who asks these really deep questions about the Messiah and worship and Jesus, oh, this is interesting. Like he comes for water, but he gets this deep conversation you have these interesting moments that we are called to pay attention to where women are actually showing a deeper level of faith and discipleship. I mean, one of my favorite examples is just the simple fact that when Jesus needed his disciples the most, they abandoned him in the garden and they don't show up to the cross except John. So 10 of the disciples, because Judas kills himself, but 10 of the disciples don't show up to the cross. But who's there at the cross? All four Gospels, I think, all four Gospels say the women showed up. Right? That is a clue that something deeper is going on. So I've changed my mind on that issue. um, Yeah, that's powerful. Because I've studied it and I've said there's more there if we have eyes to see. And a big inspiration for my book was um, the the book and movie Hidden Figures. I don't know if you saw that, but it was about these women that were part of the... Uh, middle 20th century space flight achievements. They're scientists and they're called computers. And I thought, what if there are hidden women, hidden figures in the Bible that we, that are there if we just pay attention and they're there. Oh man. I love that. That's, that's not, that makes me want to go back and read the whole Bible right now, you know, (laughs) again. That would be a long podcast. I just realized my, uh, I've been recording with my MacBook microphone instead of this awesome microphone this whole time. So you sound great okay. to the listeners, but I'm going to sound thin, which is great because it's your voice that matters on this on this on this episode. But I, I wanted to uh, 
moved to kind of so politics like <laughs> bible and politics and you right. you said you you have a heart for pastoring people mm-hmm. uh, and that's good because e- even in what you've just said especially the women conversation there's going to be people who listen to this in our church who are like not convinced that the complimentary position complementary position is not right like they're still like i think yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm listening to my church podcast and I don't know this guy, Nijay, and I trust him because I trust Evan and, <laughs> and, and he's just blowing up my paradigm. And I, I, I love that they're listening. Like, I'm so thankful we're sure. all here at the same thing. And, um, and I, f- I feel that acutely when we are looking forward to 2024, it'll be a heck of a year. Um, as far as polarization in the church. And so I would like to ask you, how would you speak to Jesus-loving people who, who really do want to see Jesus glorified in the church and yet have strong preferences that are different from one another politically? How would you d- encourage discipleship in that way um, and biblical faithfulness in that way? It's a great question, Evan. Um, I was just talking with a student uh, about um, the TV show The Chosen. I don't know if you watch The Chosen, but I really like it. And one thing that I, I watched a interview with, um, you know, the creator Dallas Jenkins, and uh, one thing that he really wanted to bring out is the theological and political disagreements between the disciples especially someone like a tax collector and someone like a zealot. So a zealot would be kind of an anarchist <laughs> freedom fighter and yeah. and a tax collector is a collaborator, you know, and 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 so you might think, you know, a staunch democrat and a staunch republican, a big government person and a small government person, a conspiracy theorist and, you know, whatever the other opposite is of that. Uh and and the idea that Jesus goes out of his way to pick people like that, right, um, says something about the church, that it can handle difference, and it's a place for difference. And I admire if, if, if your church is a place where there are people that come together with those differences. I look at the discourse right now about Palestinians and Israel and Gaza and... Yeah. Scholars and pastors who I absolutely love are uh, are attacking each other um, on, you know, and I thought and I've thought a lot about should I say something? What should I say? Like, I don't want to water it down by saying everybody should love everybody. Stop the violence. Like, I do believe that, but that doesn't seem to solve anything. But you raise a good question. What do we do about this? None of this is going to be earth-shattering, Evan, but I'll give you some of my feelings about this. Um, I'm writing a book on love. Uh, It's called The Affections of Christ Jesus, and it's about how Paul's theology, and my my specialty is Paul, any, any study of Paul's theology must begin and focus on and end with love. So this is kind of an Augustinian principle. Mm. But the weird thing is, I've read like a million Pauline theology textbooks or, or monographs, and none of them talk about love except at the very end with like, let's, you know, give each other a holy kiss and be nice to each other. Right. But the whole beginning of the gospel is 
the compassion of God, right? God's love for enemy, Romans 5 and Romans 8. Um, Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. So wherever our, wherever our theology and politics is, if we're Christian, um, it has to come from a place of compassion and love. Even, even our anger, even our anger, and anger is okay. I want to say that. Anger is okay and can be really good actually has to come from a place of love. Now that seems counterintuitive because anger can come. I feel like this is Star Wars from the dark side, from a place of hate, right? And fear. But anger can also come from a place of love, right? We who are angry at Hamas, uh, when, when it's rightly ordered, as Augustine would say, uh, mm -hmm. it's our anger towards Hamas is out of a compassion and love for the people that are being harmed. Right. Mm. So when we're in disagreement, let's say you and I are in, in disagreement over some political thing. Right. If we're able to sit down a coffee instead of just getting into it and saying, ah, you're such a closed minded. And I want to say, Evan, tell me what you love. Tell me who you love and why. And that's going to soften the relationship. And I'm going to know why, you know, otherwise I'm judging you thinking Evan doesn't know anything. He just watches Colbert. He doesn't get the real news. He just watches Fox News or he just watches MSNBC. But if I start to say, tell me who you love and why. And why, mm. you know, so my theology of love, you know, it comes from some emotion theories. Love is essentially wrapping our soul around another person or thing. Now that can happen in a good way with our children, our spouse, our friends. It can happen in a bad way with an addiction, with pornography, with gambling, whatever it is. Um, so when we when we love and hate something, it's because we've wrapped our souls around something and that's caused us to protect and nurture that thing. And that can be really good and that could be really bad. And so when it comes to difference, I think there has we have to break down the way that social media works, which is amplifying judgment. You know, one thing that AJ and I have learned on a podcast is real change can't happen without relationship. And, you know, even on the political level, some of the best political changes have happened because there have been relationships across the aisle. So uh, I, I, for me, the answer is love. I know that's trite, but I think of a, of a, a Christian and civil rights leader named John Perkins he has a famous saying, love is the final fight. Mm -hmm. um, and and what he that. means by that is any lasting justice change in the world can't come from a place of hate. Has to come from a place of love. And, and that means loving those that we love, like the victims in Gaza or, or you know, wherever the victims are. Uh, and, and that can lead to action, that can lead to anger. But then it also has to be love of enemies. I've come to believe, Evan, the hardest teaching by far in the Bible, the absolute hardest teaching is love of enemy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It goes against everything that we're taught in culture, anywhere. Love of enemy. It's the absolute hardest thing. Now, tolerance of enemy, not hard. Hatred of enemy, easy. Judgment of enemy, easy. Love of enemy, the way that Jesus loves. That's... That, that, that could change everything. <laughs> that could change everything. Yeah, it reminds me of a pastor. It reminds me of several things. 
First, it reminds me of that Sting song, The Russians. Do the Russians love their children, too? Have you, I don't know if you know that song. <laughs> no. The whole, no. That's the whole point of what you just said. He, he wrote it during the Cold War, he's like, or whatever, in the 80s. And he's like, I hope the Russians love their children, too, just to try to, like, pacify the, yeah, the rhetoric yeah, that was yeah. happening at his time. I'm, and then the, the song ends, I'm sure the Russians love their children, too. Um, yeah. That's true. Yeah, it also reminds me of a pastor in our church, uh, Greg Pikin, who, <laughs> when when talking people through this question, he's like, "Okay, uh, what? You, so your neighbor is giving you a hard time? Uh, they're your neighbor, right? Okay, they're your neighbor. Jesus says what toward your neighbor? Love your neighbor. Well, they're not your neighbor, so they're your enemy. Okay, Jesus says what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's it comes the back same, to the same place. Your enemy becomes your neighbor, becomes your brother. That's like the trajectory of love." But yeah, that's the most, I mean, we're rewarded for being ready to kill our enemies. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even the rhetoric about retaliation and it's justified. And that, that, that's, on a political level, I understand why people say that. But Christians, mm -hmm. if they're learning from Jesus, um, you know, I, 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 th I think about a, a scholar named Miroslav Volf, great theologian, and... Um, his story has taught me a lot about, about my kind of interaction with the world. He had, a, a, I think, a little brother, I think is a little brother, that died. I can't tell if it's older or little, but he had a brother that died in a kind of accident involving, involving some soldiers. His little brother was a kid kind of playing. And um, Wolf's parents are pastors, uh, and they made a choice to forgive those soldiers, even though, you know, it's obviously heart-wrenching to lose a child. And mm -hmm. as Miroslav grew up, he kind of confronted his parents and said, how could you do that? Isn't that smearing the name of, you know, my brother? Isn't that? And their answer was, and I can't say as well as Miroslav does, but his, his answer, his parents' answer was, um, if God forgives us so freely, who am I to withhold forgiveness from these soldiers yeah. that, that killed, you know, our son. That that surely is a difficult thing to arrive to that decision or to enact, but it reflects what Christ has done for the world, right? Yeah. He is our peace. And so that's changed kind of the threat level of how much hostility I feel towards the world. Like that's that's God's job. God's job is to yeah. judge, right? This is what Paul says right. over and over again. Leave judgment to the one who judges justly. And God is avenger in all things, meaning he's going to make things right. Our job is to be a part of solutions, right? Leave the judgment part to God. He's good at that. Our part mm -hmm. is solutions. So if I say, well, if I love Evan, even though he's hurt me, doesn't that get Evan off the hook? Leave, leave judgment to God. Leave, the, leave judgment to the one who judges justly. That doesn't mean I don't call you out on things. But it means that yeah. my goal is love, restoration, friendship, peace, harmony, right? That's, that's the goal. And I'm preaching here. It's, this is hard stuff. Like, I'm not good at this. But I know the actual yeah. answer. I'm just yeah. not good at implementing it. Well, that's, um, yeah, so good. Uh, I'm going to pivot to a question that I get a lot. I've, I've got a lot for the last 10 years, I think, amongst, you know, peers and then younger millennials. And um, 
I'm encouraged by my kids' age, actually. The Gen Z folks seem, seem to have less angst over this question. But yeah. um, it's the question around, like, Bible and science. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, you read Genesis 1 and 2, you have two. I'm asking a lot of these questions of the... These are the same questions in different ways I'm asking throughout this interview series sure. for different people. And, and the answers have been multifaceted, which will be really enriching for our community. So I'm curious to hear you kind of process how, because if you grew up similar to me, it seems like, with you know conservative evangelicalism, then you were pushed toward probably young earth creation view yeah. early oh, on. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. Which, which I actually, you know, <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you say like about... The two complementary stories of creation, Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, and what they require us to believe about the making of the universe. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how I'm asking. What do they require us to believe about the making of the universe? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's helpful to know, and none of this is new to you, but it's helpful to know a rigidly literal scientific reading is not, is not what prevailed for the first, you know, 10 centuries of Christianity. There were theologians in the second, third, and fourth century who took Genesis 1 and 2 more theologically than literally. Um, And you can look up some of the Alexandrian school theologians uh, if you want to do that. But um, I I don't think, I, I do think a lot of ancient people would have just assumed uh, that these should be read sort of in a, you know, linear kind of way, um, because they didn't have the scientific age that we have now. We, we're on the far side of Galileo, Copernicus, and all of that, and the Enlightenment. So first of all, we have to understand the world that these texts come into. So um, these texts weren't written to respond to Darwin. Uh, they were actually written to respond to origin stories of their own times. They were an alternative to origin stories of their own time. And I won't get into all that, but if you look at some of these ancient Mediterranean origin stories, a lot of those stories are about gods at war and the world was created and humans were created as slaves, as lesser beings or whatever. And if you compare Genesis 1 and 2, the things you'd notice are it's peaceful. It's mm. purposeful. It's good, right? It's it's quiet. <laughs> just really simple things like it's quiet. There's a harmonious relationship between people and animals, between people and the earth. And then the big punchline is sin is not is an unwelcome invader into the world. Mm. And I call I call Genesis three not the fall but the undoing. It's un it's the undoing or the unraveling of the harmony that God was trying to create. Um. Mm. So I. I'm okay with, I mean, if I'm sitting down with kind of a literalist, you know, like a teenager who's doesn't really know any different than to read it literally, I will actually have them write out the list of what's created and in what order in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, humanity is the climax of creation. And in Genesis 2, I'll have them write down the order and the animals come after humans. So it's clearly something different happening there. And so there's a scholar named Tremper Longman who says these aren't linear accounts or same return. They're synoptic, mm. meaning with one eye, you're supposed to look at Genesis 1 as what I call the, the blimp cam. <laughs> it's the 30,000 yeah. foot view of creation. And, oh, then, and then Genesis 2, I call it the helmet cam 
or the GoPro nowadays we call GoPro. So it, you know, you would, it's now on the ground, right? What's, you know, you get flesh and you get bone and you get rib and you get all this kind of stuff. Genesis one is about this, this broad scope. It's like the Stanley Kubrick, you know, <laughs> and then Genesis two is the Spielberg part of the, of the movie where it's kind of oh, more so char- good. character driven. Um, and you know, okay. So science, here's how, here's how I explain it to people. I, I, I think that what the modern scientists say, um, especially if there's a consensus and the consensus, you know, is data driven. Um, I, I think that is able to be reconciled with scripture because the Bible's intent is not to teach science in most cases, right? N.T. Wright has yeah. a great example of this. He talks about one of the Psalms, I don't remember which one it is, but he says, God feeds the baby birds in the nest. And do we step in and say, no, 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 the baby bird is fed by the mother bird. Of course, ancient people knew the baby bird is fed by the mother bird. But there's this sense that God is behind all of this, that God's goodness is behind this, right? That God's Mm -hmm. um, ordering, we would call it sovereignty, is behind all of this. Um, I, I think, to me, I've met enough scientists who are Christians like Jennifer Wiseman, you should have Jennifer on your show, by the way. Uh, she's an ass scientist. She's a strong Christian. I think this is how she looks at the world, where um, there's compatibility because they're they're doing different things. Um, science is often explaining how, and scripture is often explaining why or to what end. Mm, that's helpful. Um, and that That's there's great. meaningfulness, that there's meaningfulness in it. And so let me give you, let me give you kind of a thing I do in class that help that's helpful to people sometimes. Um, so God knows, God knows all the science, right? We know that. So why isn't the science in the Bible? God chose to give scripture to us through human knowledge and culture in most cases, right? Mm-hmm. You have prophecy, which is divine. You have, you know, some things that Jesus says, which is divine. But in most cases, you know, like the book of Esther doesn't mention God. You know, you have all these texts that, you know, just are human warfare and things like that. Um, Why doesn't God just show all the science right away? Um, I think it's because if he wants to come down to our level and have a meaningful conversation with us, we can't handle that information until we're ready. So the analogy I give is when my kids were really young, you might remember this age when they're like two, three, four, and I'm teaching them why they should brush their teeth. Okay. I'm going to confess to you, Evan, I lie to them and I tell them that food has sugar monsters in it. Oh, I say the same thing. Call them sugar bugs. And when they, yeah, when they brush their teeth, right, the, you know, the, the toothpaste is poison and... They're brushing them off, so then it, you know, and then when and when they swallow it, it goes down their stomach, which has lava in it, and the lava <laughs> extra kills the sugar monsters. Now, there are no sugar monsters, but this was the way that I get them to understand what germs are in a way that makes sense to their worldview, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, then eventually <laughs> later on, they know what plaque is, and they know what you know, and they still don't brush their teeth. But um, yeah, I think God does this in Scripture, where you know, for example, the, the the earth being flat, right? Pillars of the earth, the four corners of the earth, right? All all that imagery, right? God knows the earth's not flat, but it's not super important to Him that the Israelites yeah. know that. 
because yeah, he's going to use cultural imagery that resonates. As far as we know, no one's found the pillars. Yeah, no, well, there's conspiracy theories. There's YouTube videos on that yeah. probably. But yeah, I mean, I, you know. But you're saying, you're saying God doesn't bother updating their view that there might be pillars. He just speaks yeah. his plan to be family and like, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I'm committed to you, and, and here's the plan kind of thing. I, th I think we have the same problem. Like one of my passions and frustrations with the Bible is I want to know what actually happened historically. Oh, for example, yeah. in the Gospels. I don't know if we have an hour for this, but well, we, but I, for I really, example, this is it. Like this is, this is what I, I, I would love for you to riff on that because I, that's still something that keeps me up at night a little bit. Like we just did yeah. Jonah last year. We did Jonah, and and I, I think we were able to wrap our minds around the fact that the point of the book of Jonah is not to get a community to wrestle over whether it was a orca or a humpback whale yeah, yeah, or yeah. a. Like the like that's not that's not the the point is what we already said is is loving your enemies the hardest thing in the world and yeah Jonah had Jonah wanted nothing to do with it and but we still have this fish how do how do we receive that verse and right. even though even though even though there's only two lines in the whole book that mention the fish we make it all about the fish yeah we think because safe. we yeah. we really so tell us your pro yeah or the what, sun standing still say? for a day. Or the Gospels. Well, I like to ask my students, my, especially when I used to teach undergrad students, I used to ask them, you know, when Jesus is arrested and he's mocked and they give him a crown of thorns and they put a robe on him, what color is the robe? And, you know, they're, they're trying to remember and some people say purple and some people say red. Well, Mark says it's red and John says it's purple. So then you have some literalists that want to say, oh, it was some hybrid of purple and red. I don't think that's necessary. I think that John really wants to point out that Jesus, it's a symbol of Jesus' royalty. And Mark really wants to point out it's a symbol of the blood, the loving blood that he's going to shed. But then we mm. still have the question, was there a robe and what color was it? And Evan, honestly, the answer is we don't know. We don't know. And that's hard for me. Like, Because it says there's to, a color. It, sa it, it says names there's a color, color and, and we and know we don't from know. history... We know from history there was a Jesus. He died on a cross. He had disciples. He's from Nazareth. He, you know, we have all these, we have all this information we have from other sources. But what I've come to learn is, um, and this might be controversial, I don't like red letter Bibles because red letter Bibles, if you guys are listening, know they, they put the words of Jesus in red to basically say, hey, this is really important. What I would say is either put everything in red or put nothing in red because it's all important. I'm standing, I'm giving you a standing ovation, right? Uh, we had Dan Kimball on the podcast recently, and he said the exact same thing almost verbatim, and I'm so on board. Like, oh, the New Testament was huge. authorized by Jesus. The, the Old Testament was trusted by Jesus. The New Testament was authorized by him. It's all, it comes with his authority mediating to us through his people. And, and what I've learned about some of these historical questions is part of being a Christian is trusting the gospel writers. So we call them the evangelists, right? And what they're doing, what they're not doing is giving us a neutral, objective recounting of history. What they are doing is giving us uh, an inspired, creative, but by creative, I mean inspired, <laughs> uh, creative telling of the story that's going to make clear the theological importance 
of the story of Jesus. And now we might say, well, I just want the history. And what I tell people is tough noogies. You don't have the history. We don't have it. And so either you can fall in despair and say, screw it. I don't care about the Bible. I care about Jesus. Or you can say, uh, I, I, when I read the gospels, I know the story, the real story of Jesus through these authorized storytellers. I love that there are authorized biographies, the authorized biography of, well, the gospels are the authorized biographies of Jesus. There are yeah. other things out there, but these are the authorized ones. You might say, how do you know? I do think there's a faith element in that. Now, I do think there's a place for corroboration to allow for plausibility. So we found this archaeological thing or whatever, like crosses were like this. Or I love like scholars like Craig Evans or N.T. Wright and others that try to say there's historical data that aligns yeah. with the Gospels. That's never going to lead anyone to faith. I don't, I don't, think it, I don't actually think it should. <laughs> I don't think it's going to mm, lead someone mm. to faith. But it, it will hopefully quiet some of their concerns about the Gospels being just made up. But ultimately, if you trust in Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus because God's Spirit is pairing with your spirit. Right? My security doorbell camera gets off sometimes, and I have to use this QR code on my phone to pair the devices. And it's using some weird communication. I don't know. That's what our spirits do. God's Spirit and our spirit, they pair right? Wow. They link up. And yeah. that's faith, right? That's what faith is. And I, I'm happy to defend the historicity of the Gospels, but I'm not going to defend them to the point where they're history books. I'm going to say they pro they provide enough historical information we can trust what they're saying, but they're actually theological stories. They tell the story of Jesus from a divine perspective, not from a purely human perspective. What you, Where you just took that was beautiful. And it's a perfect kind of segue to the last part I wanted to ask you about. And it's, you, Nijay, are a professional, not just a professor or, you know, a guy who has degrees, but you're part of a team that prays and seeks God's mm. power to convey in English a translation of the Bible for the world. So you're, this is your job. Bible's your job, yeah. translating it, interpreting it. But Bible for Nije is also this thing that God wants to meet Nije through. Like I'm referring yeah. to you in a third person so that we can imagine yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. like this the Bible's your job and yet you're this son of God who God now comes and interacts with and partners with, like you just said, pairs with. So how how does God meet you? Uh a, you know, cream of the crop Bible nerd, but how does God meet you? Like yeah, yeah. As a beloved son, what does that's that That's a good like? question. And I struggled with this in my early career because, you know, I'm sure you're like this too as, as a pastor and preacher. Our first instinct is on the lookout for a good sermon, a good, you know, anecdote, a good nugget, something we can share on social media, something we can share in a pastoral care session, whatever it is. You know, it, it, it's easy to get into analytical mode with the Bible. And I think there's a good place for that. We should, we should study in every way the thing that we love, right? Um, but I think I spent too much time thinking that was spirituality. Hmm. And it wasn't. <laughs> and I learned this hmm. from Eugene Peterson in his wonderful book, Eat This Book. Um, but he says, you know, this really basic statement that really struck me, 
uh, we don't read the Bible for information, we read it for formation. I mean, it's a really simple thing, but now it's become kind of my mantra. And I'll tell you what's changed in the last, I would say, five to ten years for me. Um, half of half of Christian reading of Scripture is opening up the Bible. The other half mm. is opening ourselves. That's what's oh, wow. changed in how I approach Scripture is um, the easy part is actually opening the Bible because we're used to reading books. The hard part is opening ourselves and, and, and basically reading the Bible as a form of prayer. I, I learned all these tools growing up about, you know, read the Bible, pray, fellowship, you know, as discrete boxes, you know, witness, you know, evangelize, but, but Christian reading of scripture is prayer. Hmm. As long as when we're opening up scripture, we're also opening up ourselves. That, I mean, it's, to me, that, that's, that's a different mode, right? And it's almost a muscle that you have to exercise. Like my wife, she's, she's a great athlete. She has me doing squats all the time and you can feel the pain the next day after you do a bunch of squats, right? And we need to learn, we need to make sure we're feeling the pain the next day mm. of exercising the muscle of opening ourselves up before God wow. when we read scripture. It needs to hurt because it's hard. Like I meet with a spiritual director and I hate going there because I have to tell him all the stuff, but I love yeah. when I leave because I feel so good about having opened up my life. Yeah. And I need wow. to learn how to do that, not just with my spirit director, but also with God, that I that I break open the rib cage, right? And I lay the heart bare before God and say, you know, do your work on me as I read scripture. What an inspiring answer. Thanks for that, for sharing. And the last question I like to ask people on this series is what are you excited about? What are you, it could be excitement in the, in the sense of like, positive excitement or it could be like nervous energy <laughs> like you're you're nervous about uh as you look forward and you see you see the state of the bible today the state of the church uh whether it's biblical literacy or the way generations are interacting with faith and what what's on your mind like and yeah. and out of that something to celebrate or something to challenge sure yeah um you know i there's been a lot of reminiscing about Rachel Held Evans lately, um, and I didn't know her work really well, but one thing that stuck with me from her work is she said, um, every generation or two, the church has to die and rise again. Um, and I think we're seeing a cycle of the church dying, and... Um, that can cause a lot of anxiety because we want to feel like we're controlling whether the church lives or dies. Mm. But what I hear in Rachel's statement is hope that it will rise again as Gandalf the white, you know, or get off the gray. I can't remember which one, but it's the other Gandalf. And, and he, what's happening white. is it's, he was, yeah. he was gray before I, he was gray. So Gandalf the white, I got it right. So, you know, you and I are probably around the same age and we grew up probably in a similar way, kind of a fundamentalist, you know, rigidly literal, maybe Christian culture. I grew up in the Bible Belt kind of atmosphere. 
And that's dying. It's dying all over the place. And we can, we can hold on to the ship of Christendom and go down with the ship and try to remember the good old days of tooth and nail and all that stuff. Uh, or, or we can just be excited about a new, a new world of faith that doesn't have our baggage. <laughs> you were talking about your mm -hmm. kids and I think about my kids and they don't have the baggage I have. They don't have the inerrancy debates baggage. They don't have the science mm -hmm. and faith baggage. They love spirituality. They love science. They don't really see a problem there. So what I guess what I'm, what I'm excited about is not, not putting the pressure on me to, to keep a version of the church alive that God wants to kill and raise again in a new form. Um, that, that just takes it off my plate. Like I'm just here to participate and observe in God's resurrection power. Mm. And I live in Portland, Oregon, you know that, and you know, Portland people outside of Portland think Portland's a cesspool of horrible things. But I know that God is doing really amazing things through the Bible project, which is here through a variety of churches that are here. And I just feel a spirit of hope because people are being freed from some pretty ugly forms of Christianity. And mm -hmm. whether it grows or not, I'm starting to see signs of resurrection. That's beautiful. That's encouraging. Thanks, Nijay. My goodness. So, Nijay, what, where can people, I don't know, if they want if they want to like learn under you, they would have to yeah. go to Northern, right? Or something. <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're a professor there. You're also living in Portland. But the university you work for is in Chicago, um, right? And and so, how how else can people kind of follow your work or? Um, yeah, you mentioned the podcast, and AJ and I we love getting together uh, once every week or two and record these podcasts. I feel like we're kind of pastoring people who are either just outside the church or with one foot outside the church, and we do encourage people to go to church. But I feel like we do have a ministry there just to say, hey, Jesus is good. We don't have the answers. But that's okay. Um, that's kind of our subtle tagline to the podcast. And then also, if you have people who want to read something from me, I would encourage them to read my book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, which is oh, a yeah. kind of walkthrough of these kind of big words in the Bible that can really be really meaningful today, like love, hope, uh, grace, faith, righteousness, gospel. Um, it, it can kind of give you a shot in the arm of, okay, the Bible actually can speak into my daily life. Amazing. Well, thanks, Nijay, for taking an hour out of your day. I know your time is both limited and valuable, so I want to thank you so much. And I'm going to ask you to stay on for a minute as this podcast kind of uploads to our computers, but I'm going to sign off from the Park Hill Podcast. And thank you again, Nijay, for coming, and may the Lord bless and keep you, Park Hill Church, and everyone listening. May God's face shine upon you. Have an amazing day. Thanks for listening.